Welcome to this Kansas News Service special, My Fellow Kansans, People and the Pandemic. I'm Jim McLean. All of the stories you'll hear come from Season 3 of the My Fellow Kansans podcast. And all of them have a common theme, as everyone adjusted to the coronavirus invading their lives and sometimes their bodies. We begin in Wichita. By mid-June, the state had given the green light for most businesses to reopen their doors, little by little. It was not a moment too soon for people who were looking to get rid of their lockdown hairstyles, whatever they looked like, and freshen up. The business owners were ready, some having spent weeks trying to get unemployment benefits or emergency loans. Ryan Grimmett went to the Profiles Beauty Salon and Barbershop to talk with owner and hairstylist Montella Wimbley, who opened up about it all. Montella Wimbley is happy and grateful to hear the sounds of people coming and going from her salon on the corner of 21st and Grove in Wichita. It's called Profiles Beauty and Barber Salon, and Montella says about 75% of her regular clients have started scheduling appointments again. But life at the salon is still far from normal after being forced to close for a couple of months due to the coronavirus. I didn't mind in the beginning, but I didn't have any idea that it would last as long as it did. It was kind of relaxing, getting a little break, but the reality is when I'm not working, I'm not making any money, so that wasn't too fun after a while. Uh, I, luckily, I do, you know, I have a little savings that is very dwindling down 20, fairly quickly, especially when you have two sets of bills, because I have my home bills, I have my salon bills. They don't stop just because I'm not here. They still, you know, they still come, so. It's been very interesting. It would be a lot better if I had could, got at least some unemployment. Which Montella qualified for, but found next to impossible to get. She is one of more than 300,000 Kansans who applied for benefits since mid-March. The surge of applications was just too much to handle for the limited number of state employees and the nearly 40-year-old system they are working with. Oh, that, now that was really probably more frustrating than even trying to pay my bills. It was trying to get in contact because if you were on the computer, it would only let you go so far, and then it would tell you to call the number. If you call the number, you can't get through, and it would tell you to go back online. So it has been days that I had called the unemployment number over three or 400 times in one day. So really, that was like my job every single day because you couldn't get in. Finally, after calling every single day from the first day it started three months ago, I finally got in two weeks ago, officially. So I still haven't gotten a check, and I still haven't got my stimulus check, and I have applied for some small business loans, and I hadn't heard from them either. Montella's customers, who are used to shooting the breeze at the shop, then jumped into the conversation. They should have updated their service. That's why I was saying when she was talking about. In 2000, they should have updated. They know things was going, you know, anything is happening. They said if it hasn't been in 40 years, come on. Right. You had a whole, you had 40 years of budgeting. You know what I'm saying? You had a budget. You know, you want to be a law-abiding citizen, but after... The first month, you was like, okay. The second month, kind of in the middle of the second month, you're like, oh, well, it almost makes you think about it. So 
the third one, I was really like, okay, uh, I hope we open soon. We're just gonna hold a little longer. So it was very trying, actually. Honestly, what do you do? I mean, how do you how do you how do you pay your bills? Put it like this: one of my clients, as she came in, this guy that just kind of walks up and down the street, he uh, came in, and I'm just nice to him. And sometimes he might need dollar, two dollars, five dollars, whatever. I give it to him. And he needed a dollar that day. And I, you know, I haven't been working, but I gave it to him. This is what I do. And so when she got ready to go, she goes, I've been blessed to be able to work every day since the pandemic. She said, and you're always just blessing people all the time. She said, so I want to bless you. So she gave me a $125 blessing. And, you know, you never know who, the, who will bless you. And it's, and I do try to bless people, you know, I really do. So it comes back to you. So I'm going to say God just been taking care of me, honestly. She says that spirit of supporting one another comes from her parents and what they taught her growing up in this community. And it's not just her. She says in her 34 years of cutting hair in the same building, she's seen that it's an ethos the whole neighborhood shares. I'm right here on the corner of 21st and Grove. Uh, if you want to say the middle of the black community and people who always have a lot of negative things to say but you can just sit here in my parking lot you can sit right here in my parking lot and see the love of the people because there's other businesses next door to me and all day long they're getting out the car hey and hugging one another a lot of people because it is a black neighborhood want to say you know it's in the black neighborhood so you want to be scared but if they got out and really walked around and said hi they're probably some of the most friendly people you ever want to meet because we really do take care of each other. Keith Hill is next up in the chair. He lives just around the corner from the salon where he works as a home health aide at a senior residence. He's been coming to Montella's for haircuts since the early 90s. This area is not what, I mean, things are going on in every part of town, okay? Every part of town. I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I, I love where I live. The people that I'm with, I live in like a senior resident. And, you know, we're, we're like family, you know, there we, we look at each other. I mean, you know, and with this going on, meaning the coronavirus pandemic, you've got to make sure that uh, you're checking on them because you don't know, particularly when you haven't seen somebody in a minute, you want to know like, well, where is sister so-and-so because ain't nobody seen her. But like I said, I was, I was at these people's house when they took that friend out when she first got it. And it was really weird to watch the EMS come all suited. I call it suited and booted in those, look like rain gear and those, you know, shields and stuff. Oh, yeah. oh my God. I don't know how they knew she had it, but that's the way they were dressed. And then when they found out she did, I was like, oh, wow. But we thank God we were praying for her and everything. She's doing better though. But, and I hate to say this, it makes you leery to be around people like that. I mean, it's not their fault. They got it, but I mean, still though, you want to be cautious. You don't, yeah. want, you don't want it. It's not saying that I don't love you anymore, but I got to worry about me too. Yeah, so, uh-uh. People want to go to the pools. They want to be outside. They want to go on vacation. So, and we've been in the house for two, two and a half months already. And summer's just starting. So I think people are just kind of getting a little more lax because, really, because it is summertime. All right. Well, I will see you next week. All righty. Okay.
With Keith gone, Montella begins a new part of her routine, spraying the just vacated seat with disinfectant and wiping it down. You know, you don't know where they've been. You know what you do or where you go. So you just kind of makes you wonder, huh? Like I'm not ready to go actually sit inside of a restaurant right now or like the movie theaters. You know, and they may have, and it's okay because everybody can feel however they want to, but me personally, I'm not there. So have they been on the plane? Have they been out of town where it's a hot spot? So that's a concern. So I just try to do quite a bit of sanitation in between each one, you know. Um, not to cut you out, but you can curl it to where it's not a lot, lot of curls. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's not going to be a okay. lot. It's kind of in this top, literally. Our lives are different. It's a, this new normal is an adjustment. Just like this mask on my face all day, that is definitely a just an adjustment. You going to make it, though? You going to be okay? Oh, absolutely. We're survivors. Look, we are survivors. Survivors, definitely. Make the best of whatever whatever's going on. Not every business closed during the coronavirus. In western Kansas, the state made a point to keep meatpacking plants open, plants in three counties that process about 25% of the nation's beef. Those counties became COVID-19 hotbeds. Workers got infected, took it home, and spread it to families and friends and communities like Garden City. And when Finney County was seeing significant spikes in cases, Sly Hung was one of the thousands of real people behind the numbers. He talked with reporter Corinne Boyer about how the virus affected his life and his work. In downtown Garden City, a park dense with trees fills a city block in the center of town. Sly Hung sits on a bench wearing a disposable mask. He's been to this park once before. I am from Myanmar, Burma. We have a celebration with, uh, in Garden City, the Chin community, Chin people came to here this park. Sly is from the Chin state in Myanmar, a state that's predominantly Christian and where Christians have been persecuted by the Buddhist military for years. That's why thousands of Chin have left Myanmar, which borders India. The Chin National Day is held on February 20th every year, commemorating when Burma gained independence from Great Britain. The Chin uh, clothing we wear and then we singing and we talking about the Chin Nation Day and we have eat food and a lot of fun. This year, a few weeks after Chin National Day in the Garden City Park, Kansas got its first case of the coronavirus on the other side of the state but it soon made its way to rural counties where cases rose by the hundreds within a few weeks. In early May, Sly's cousin, who works in close proximity to other people, got sick. His cousin is also his roommate. My cousin, he getting sick, and then we are going to appointment with uh, the hotling, the COVID-19 hotling, and then he got positive. Sly's friends told him he should quarantine in a hotel in hopes that he wouldn't get sick. I moved there, but not longer, just only two days I got it getting sick. Did you drive? Was it like a drive-through when they tested you? Yes, I'm driving through and then they asked me 
they checking my ID and my name and my appointment time and then yeah they testing me I open my the window driving side and then they yeah they pushing sticker in my nose and then I'm just waiting outside a little bit like five minutes and then the the guys coming and then you got a positive Sly gets sick pretty fast. He says he couldn't eat, and he was vomiting even though he wasn't eating. Then he starts coughing. His legs throb with aches. He leaves the hotel, goes back to his home, and feels like this for three weeks. Sly goes to this nonprofit clinic because he's uninsured, and the clinic offers medical care on a sliding scale. Uh, they asked me why the reason you, you came here, and then the reason, because I got COVID-19, so I, I'm not getting better yet. Before I, I saw the doctor, the nurse checking me temperature. The doctor is coming inside the room. The doctor asks Sly if he needs a piece of paper excusing him from work. Sly is a delivery driver for Domino's and has worked there for almost three years. He tells the doctor no, he doesn't need a work excuse. He made an appointment because he's still coughing, he's dizzy, he can't smell, and he feels terrible. The doctor said, you are not, you're not getting COVID-19 because I have experienced a lot of experience, a lot of people, I already watch it. I already check it. This is like only fever, like flu, flu or something. Uh, so you, you're not getting COVID-19. Even though Sly tested positive almost a month earlier. Then the doctor repeats himself, saying that Sly only wants a note to get out of work and that he's better. And he wrote, so he wrote the note before he saw you. Yeah. And then yeah. when he did see you, you said that he didn't examine you. Yeah. He just touched me only my back and he did not uh, examine himself. The nurse uh, testing fever or something, the nurse doing, but the doctor doesn't do it, anything. And then I'm really sad, I'm not happy. Sly says he's never had an experience like this before and has lived in the U.S. for almost 10 years. When he's gone to the hospital or to other appointments, he says the nurses and doctors are nice. He calls the clinic a few times to tell them what happened. Eventually, he gets a call back and the clinic's manager tells him he won't have to see that doctor again. The day after his clinic visit, still sick, Sly goes back to work. Yeah, right now my bo my both leg is itches, itches right now. Right now? Yeah, my body is uh, the same. I'm trying to exercise, uh, uh, walking, and then I eating, drinking water a lot, and then it's better, but not not normal yet. Before the pandemic, Sly used to see his friends more, go to church, parties, and picnics. It's been hard, but he says wearing a mask lets him do some of those things. But a lot of people, they don't come in to church because they say at home, right now, it's your friends, your cousin, your family also, if you got COVID-19, they don't want to see you, they don't want to talk to you because everybody's scared. He's praying that the pandemic gets better, and in the future, he hopes, Everybody's happy, everybody's working, everybody's uh, happy.
On the other side of the state, near the Missouri border, reporter Celia Yopis Jepson met Anil Garmalker. He's an essential worker, a truck driver who was all over the nation's midsection in the early months of the pandemic, delivering food to grocery stores. Then he came down with COVID-19. She visited Anil, his wife, and his mother on July 1st and listened to them describe the fear, sometimes panic, and eventually the joy of making it through the initial medical troubles. Anil Garmulker pulls a semi into the gravel driveway outside his house. It's a 2016 Freightliner Cascadia. We're in Oswego, rural southeast Kansas, not far from the Oklahoma border. Usually with a refrigerated trailer, we can pull about 44,000 pounds of meat. In April, while so many of us were hunkering down, Anil was making deliveries. Yeah, we were taking uh, turkey products. And that's probably how he caught COVID-19. Arkansas and Louisiana. He doesn't really know. I think I may have even been in Tennessee. Anil is 41, and though it's been three months since he got sick, his voice is still raspy. That's kind of par for course for having the, you know, any extended time on the ventilators. His mom is a nurse. My name is um, Tamara Chancellor, and I live here in Oswego as well. She has a really practical, clinical way of explaining what her son went through. And here's his wife. Uh, my name is Jalon Evans Garmalker. She and Anil own several semis and run a trucking business. She was home when he got really sick, driving back from deliveries in Indiana. It was taking him a long time to get home, which is unnatural for him. (laughs) I mean, I was stopping, but I wasn't getting out of the truck. He has uh, bunk beds in the back, so he is able to park and kind of lay down and, and rest. And when he got home, he was in terrible shape. The next day, he was still, he was even more miserable. I knew his mom was going to be coming home that day, and thank goodness she came over to check on him. I got in about 10 o'clock at night, and then came right over. She checked my uh, oxygen with a pulse ox, uh, whatever, the finger thing. It's a thing that you put on people's fingers, and it tells you what the pulse is, and what your oxygen is. Um, Anyway, his oxygen level was like between 87 and 88 percent. And most people, you'll be between 95 and 100 percent. So they, she had um, took me to the ER. The ER is, uh, it's about 20 miles away in Parsons at Libet Health. And they did the COVID test. They tried to send me home with, you know, whatever they could to make me more comfortable. And I um, didn't agree to that. They figured I was positive, and I didn't want to be back home around anyone. I've got nine kids total, and then in the house, um, full-time with us, we have uh, two, a 13-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old, and then my wife. And I knew the test was going to be expedited, so we were going to know within 24 hours if it was a positive or not. And then once we finally got the, the final test result, it was just... You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know if you're sick. You don't know if the kids are sick. (laughs) You don't know what's going to happen to him. And the next morning, they put us all on quarantine. And I was concerned because I have asthma. I'm over 60. I had driven him to the hospital, and I didn't even think twice about it. 
I drove him to the hospital without a mask. <laughs> it won't happen again. <laughs> they moved me within a day or two to the ICU because they needed to be able to observe me better. And I said, and who's his ICU nurse going to be? Well, it's Peggy. And I said, oh, Peggy's the best. And the next morning, Peggy called me and said, tomorrow, we're going to have to intubate him. Normally, people breathe somewhere between 16 to 24 breaths in and out per minute. His was almost double that. And she said, he's just not getting enough oxygen, and we need to get him to KU Medical Center. Um, she said, call him now. You've got an hour. And um, it, it was very difficult. And so I called him. The best that he could do was, I love you, Mom. That was it. I was just fighting for really violent, you know, shallow breaths. They gave me an hour while they were getting things ready for me to get, you know, make any calls or do anything I wanted to do. So I, uh, I thought those were going to be um, possibly some of the last calls I made. I talked to my wife. I, I gave her instructions on how to run the business while I was gone and was trying to make sure she had access to everything. It was just, you know, here's the password to my email so you can get into my email for the business. Take care of the guys. You know, this is what you need to do. And if you want to... I love you, or, you know, everything's going to be okay. But it's like telling me all of that was his way of saying I love you and making sure that we were okay. I think I spent a good 15 minutes just praying and settling things. And I had some friends call me, and they were, um, they were into a lot of the conspiracy stuff. So they were, you know, discouraging me from the ventilator and the next steps. And it was probably not a good thing to hear from them at the time. I was really scared at that point that, you know, I had infected my mother and my wife and the kids that were here. And I even asked the doctor, I said, are we able to come by and, you know, see him go? I, I couldn't even see him before he went on the helicopter. Everything was ready. He was going straight to the COVID ICU unit at KU Medical Center. And uh, I think it was 1 o'clock. He hit Kansas City at 1.30. So they got there in about 30 minutes. And so the first call that we got was from a palliative care doctor. Palliative care isn't always about end of life. But the perception is, is that's what it is. And the questions that they were asking was, when do you think Neil would want to stop treatment, basically? And my heart stopped. It was a day-by-day -day type of thing. So every morning we would get a call from a doctor or nurse, and every evening we would get a um, Zoom call with Neil. I think the first call was the hardest. I mean, I knew... I knew what was happening. I knew he had tubes. I, I knew... But actually, seeing it is completely different. When people are on ventilators or in a, in a medically induced coma, they have found that they do better with human contact. And you just kind of tell them, you know, we love you, and we're all doing fine, we're not sick, we're not showing any symptoms. Later I asked him if he remembered the calls, and he said, no, not so much. I mean, I think I have some, like, 
flashbacks or memories on the ventilator when they would, you know, wake me up to uh, wiggle my toes or they'd give me a simple instruction and then they'd knock me back out. The Zoom calls were really not just for Neil, but they were for us too because we connected and we were able to say what we needed to say just in case. I was mentally and physically exhausted. I gained about 10 pounds. I will admit I was stress eating to the max. I don't know how many times I mopped a day. I was just trying to stay busy, trying to take care of the house, trying to take care of the business, you know, make sure the girls were okay. Um, people would drive by, drop stuff on our porch, snacks and games and stuff for the girls. So I have a little notebook that we kept track of everything, his labs and his medications and what they did. And so the medication that they gave him was something called Losartan. And by the third day, they were talking about taking him off the ventilator. Correlation doesn't always equal causation, but it appeared to work for him. That was a clinical trial. And then I start to remember real broken memories of when they actually brought me out. Some of it makes sense and some of it is weird. I, I think there was a day I thought there was a McDonald's behind the closet door. You know, there were days I thought I was kidnapped and in a foreign country because I woke up um, restrained. And my understanding is I pulled out and I pulled out feeding tubes out of my neck. I was trying to figure out first three days in the ICU, you know, how to get out. They would ask me if I, you know, remembered COVID or remembered whatever, and, and I thought they were kind of making everything up to make money or, you know, there was something, you know, I just didn't trust anyone. There were two moments that were really happy that I remember as, like, exhilarating. One was when I got my phone and saw messages from my family, and probably above that was when I got water for the first time. I just remember being dry all the time. Ice water was great for days. They drove um, to Kansas City to pick me up. Uh, my wife, my mom, and I think the girls came. That was the first day I was officially off of quarantine. So that was a great day anyway. <laughs> we could go pick him up from the hospital and he got to go to Freddy's. It's like we could go on the open road and get out of town. It was great. <laughs> So a few months later, Anil is still recovering. He doesn't have COVID-19 anymore, but his throat, it swelled up a few times to the point where he struggled to get any air, and that landed him back in the ER two more times. He says life is different now in his small town. Some people think he's contagious. People have treated, you know, not just me, but my family differently. With, with the voice too, you know, and I'll just notice they'll take a step back. Then there's the people who think the world is making a fuss over a regular old flu. That makes me nuts because I've never flown anywhere on a helicopter with the flu. You know, I've never been out of work for three months because I got a cold or the flu. You know, I've never been scared that I killed my family over it. I never thought I was that close to death because of it. You know, it's not the same thing. Since this podcast episode first aired, Anil has been in and out of the hospital even more. 
Doctors even gave him a tracheotomy at the end of July to help him breathe while he undergoes further treatment. As we turn the corner into summer, America came face to face with a turning point in its long struggle to overcome racism. And Wichita resident Gabrielle Griffey turned her focus from a vintage store to activism, seeking equality and end to racist policing tactics, and for everyone to say black lives matter. Nomeen Ujiadeen spoke with her in June. My name is Gabrielle Griffey, and I'm the co-owner of Dead Center Vintage in downtown Wichita. I'm also executive director of Project Justice ICT, um, which is an organization that is pushing for police abolition and um, the recognition and uh, dismantling of systemic white supremacy in Wichita. I met with Griffey at the Pure Heart Worship Center, just northeast of downtown. It's the church where her group holds meetings. We also stopped by her store. We're at Dead Center Vintage, <laughs> which is like um, our store all together in downtown Wichita, 626 East Douglas. Hey, let me turn this, my phone sound off. So it's like, Bloo. and we got some like knickknacks and some hats at the front. And like one of the mannequins is holding a Black Lives Matter sign because yeah, because we're woke. I mean, I haven't been in here for in a second, so like, I was just looking at seeing what new things people have brought in. I know, it kind of sucks like not being able to be in here all of the time anymore, because I do miss it like, <laughs> this is so much more peaceful work than like, protesting and organizing and talking to victims of police brutality, but it's really soothing for me to be in this space, because it's like, I love clothes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd been selling vintage for like five years before we had opened the shop. And then um, in December, we just kind of got the opportunity to get a place together. And so I put my last $800 into it. And um, yeah, now we have a business downtown. On March 16th, we closed due to the pandemic. Um, but it was definitely a really difficult decision having been open for only a month and a half to have to close our brand new business with all of our, you know, opening debt, all of our, all of our, you know, dreams. It kind of was just like instantly shut down in a second, but, you know, it, it's fine. <laughs> Getting this opportunity for this dream and then like taking out all sorts of credit cards, you know, to buy the materials, to build the racks to build the shop up, to make repairs in the building. When you're 23 and like you have $800 in your pocket, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, it wasn't the best. And like just really having to close the business down really <laughs> sucked. <laughs> We reopened on uh, May 8th. We sort of had no choice to. So um, the landlord was gracious enough with us to um, half our rent during the, during the stay-at-home order because he knew, you know, brand new. But after the city and Laura Kelly were like, well, we're lifting the stay-at-home, he was like, time to catch up. So we kind of were, you know, put into a corner on that. It's open the business, pay the rent or 
keep everybody safe, potentially lose the business, don't make any money, drain all of your savings. It was a really difficult situation, but in the end, we had to do it. Griffey says activism is now her main focus. It's informed by a lifetime of experience as a Black woman in Wichita. So I grew up on the south side of Wichita, but I went to all Hayesville schools. And Hayesville is like a town of like 10-ish thousand people. And it's very, very predominantly white. I graduated out of a class of 400 with 13 other Black kids in my class. So I've been called, you know, all the slurs that you can probably think of that can be used against a black person. When Mike Brown got killed, um, I was 18. And so that really, it hit really, really like hard. I organized this protest, just put it out on Facebook, you know, in solidarity with Ferguson, Black Lives Matter. And so that was my sort of first coming into activism in Wichita and coming into um, seeing what's going on in this city, though I didn't really get that far into it because it fizzled out. But I think this time around, it's, you know, it's been six years. I'm, I'm a little older, I'm, and I'm prepared to take it on. So in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, uh, it was just kind of like we all came together and um, somehow I ended up getting the top position, which is really strange. But um, yeah, so um, it was literally just somebody message me, messaging me on Facebook, like, are you ready to fight for black lives? And I was like, I am. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I meet with a lot of other organizers. I meet with uh, representatives of families who have um, had injustices committed against them by the Wichita Police Department, seeing it firsthand and meeting with the people who it's touched so personally, it's a lot to take on. It's definitely really difficult um, to see these people going through so much pain and our city is just pushing that pain, pushing the knife in even deeper and twisting it. Our number one priority currently is Black Lives Matter. We're looking at all facets of it. So um, systemic poverty, we're looking at homelessness, mental health and um, mental illness related issues, domestic violence and gang violence related issues. It's very blatantly obvious in a place like Wichita, the disparities, like how you see the south side of town, like it's so poor, it's so ran down. But the east and west sides, they're growing, they're booming, and you only see white people there. You don't really ever see black people there. You, you see black people on the north and the south side. I'm definitely worried um, in terms of the pandemic, but um, being a black woman in America is honestly a health risk to me, period. So it's, it's kind of like, um, you got to take what you can get. If I'm going to fight for you know, my right to, as a black woman, to live, um, the pandemic's not going to stop me, honestly. Um, also, just point out the fact that here in Wichita and across the nation, black and brown communities are the number one communities being affected by this pandemic um, because of lack of ex access to health care, lack of insurance. Why why are we not doing more to help our marginalized communities in this city um, and in this, the rest of this country? 
to make sure that they don't have to come out and protest? Why are we killing black men by kneeling on their chests when there's a respiratory disease going around? It's kind of just a slap in the face. As we move forward, we'll have more of an idea of what kind of effect the pandemic is actually happening on these protests. But also, if people want change, they're going to come out regardless. Since we talked to Gabrielle, she has been arrested twice for protesting and charged with unlawful assembly as well as municipal and county violations. She says her organization, Project Justice ICT, is regrouping and refocusing on providing help to the community where it's needed. And her store, Dead Center Vintage, recently partnered with a local pantry to put a fridge and groceries in front of the store for people who need food. Teachers are a flexible bunch. They have to be. They're accustomed to reading their students and adjusting what and how they teach to make sure they're getting through to the kids. That go-with-the-flow attitude got put to the test last spring when the coronavirus forced schools to move to full online instruction. And it's much the same now as schools reopen. Reporter Stephen Caranda talked to Michelle Taylor, who teaches middle and high schoolers in Silver Lake, a small community just west of Topeka. Michelle lives in rural Shawnee County with her husband Andrew and a recent addition to the family. This is Jack. He's two months old. Yeah, what's he doing? She now teaches in the Silver Lake School District. I actually grew up a mile from here and this is the house I actually went to daycare in for the first 11 years of my life. When I originally graduated high school and went to college, I went to KU and my plan was to go into political science. Um, and then I started to realize that if I really wanted to make a difference um, in the world, I probably wasn't going to achieve much of that through politics in our current political climate. So I decided to teach instead. When I chose to teach, I didn't choose to teach like English or speech or debate forensics. That's not why I went into teaching. The whole entire reason I went into teaching was to teach kids. When you're in a classroom, that the focus, I mean, yeah, I'm teaching them a certain content, but the focus is always the relationships and the kids. And when I'm at home, it feels like I'm just like pushing content out without getting that relationship with students. So it doesn't really feel like teaching much at all. As a communications teacher especially, right? Like a lot of our communication, that energy comes from nonverbal communication. It comes from them talking to each other, not just talking to me. And so when we're doing it through like email, I can't see their face. I don't actually know if they're understanding what I'm saying. I don't actually know. Like usually when a student gets it, you see the, like you see the aha moment. And that's one of like the cool things as a teacher. I don't get to see that when I'm teaching virtually. It's like, I don't even know if they actually got it or not. Um, I also think that I mean, one of the biggest struggles, I think, as a teacher is preparing for the unknown. Yeah. Yep, he's got the hiccups so there's it and a smile. And a smile. Yeah. Oh. When they made the announcement uh, that we were going to go, not be going back to school after spring break, um, I had just reached seven months uh, in my pregnancy. <laughs> um, so I was due May 19th. And so that was a big change as well. I mean, it really changed 
uh, how like how we did our appointments. All my appointments had to be just me. My husband couldn't go to the appointments. Um, when we delivered, I had to do so with a mask on. I mean, there was a lot of changes that came along with that. I mean, there were, I'm not going to lie. There were some nice things too i mean seven to nine months of pregnancy started to feel really uncomfortable um it was in some ways nice i didn't have to get up and go to like get up and get to school um i could just teach from the comfort of my own home um so in some ways that was kind of nice but yeah there was a lot of i think just that extra layer of uncertainty we also got married um on it was the thursday of spring break the 12th a day before they announced we were going to go not be going back to school and then they shut down the next like that monday is when they shut down the courthouse and did all that so uh yeah so it was a wild time uh for uh, for me personally trying to teach virtually getting married having a child uh doing all of that so it was definitely a busy spring 2020 has been a wild year <laughs> michelle set up her makeshift classroom a few steps off the uh, living room this is this was the dog room um, until it was time for me to come home. Um, my chair, so my husband working in the basement, he stole my chair once school ended. Um, this is my desk for my classroom that I took out. Um, and it's a desk that I had purchased, so it is mine. But um, I took out, I took my rug. Um, so I kind of took a lot of things just to try to make it feel a little bit more like school um, because I felt really weird the first couple of days teaching um, away from school. What are you thinking school might be like in this coming year? Or what are you feeling as we approach, we think, a school year starting <laughs> relatively soon? I think we already know that it, uh, it's going to be different. I, I've been working um, in my district on our plan. I, it's going to require a lot of flexibility, right? Because no one really knows. I mean, you see lots of research that says that the virus like does not spread with children as much. But then newer research is coming out from like summer camps and stuff where children have been and it's spread like wildfire. So I think it's just one of those things where um, it's gonna require us to have to switch from uh, doing in-person classes to moving to virtual for some students that may be in quarantine while still teaching classes. Um, but then if like a whole grade level gets taken out, then all those teachers have to be prepared to teach uh, virtually and all those like students have to be pre prepared to learn that way um, and I think that's going to be difficult um, but I also think you're going to see some really good things come out of it too I mean like one of the things the Department of Education put out is they put out that their new kind of competency-based grading, competency-based learning, um, and that I think that's a really good, a positive for education. And so I think you're going to see um, more individualized learning. So many of us want, like, we're ready to go back to school as normal. Like that, I mean, it's like, okay, we're done with this. Like, this has lasted long enough. Get us, get us to normal. But I think that it's we're not there yet right and so i think and i think that's the hard part for a lot of people is it's disrupted so many lives in so many ways um that people are like just give us this one normal thing of getting back to school and i think that's going to be probably the hardest part as we get started schools are considering safety and michelle says it's not just about students and teachers we were going through the numbers last week and a hundred percent of our bus drivers are in the high risk category in silver lake I mean, so not just even teachers, and we definitely have teachers, like we have um, a couple teachers that are taking, that are living with their elderly parents right now that have conditions like COPD and that are uh, these underlying health conditions that them coming back to the classroom and then possibly taking that home, I think is really, really concerning. Um, we have some students who have contacted the district already and said, what are our virtual learning options?
options because of underlying health conditions. And I mean, I have my own concerns, right? I mean, uh, I have a newborn and I also like, I have a 65, I'm sorry, an 85 year old grandmother and my family's still seeing her every once in a while. And so knowing that when I go back to school, I'm gonna have to stop seeing the like few family members that I still do get to see. I mean, that's gonna be really hard for us as well. It's not that we don't want to be at school. I've seen that a lot too, um, especially on social media, which is like never, I feel like a healthy place to be during an, any sort of like national crisis. But um, a lot of people are like, oh, teachers just don't wanna go back to work. Teachers don't wanna do this. Teachers don't wanna do that. And I feel like that's a really big misrepresentation of what the situation actually is. Teachers are in this for kids. And I don't know any teacher who enjoys teaching without kids. Like if you take a personal relationship with kids out of the equation, none of us enjoyed that. Um, and so I think that we all wanna try to get back to the building as quick as possible, as normal as possible. But I think just remembering that safety is important too. Michelle, her husband, and Jack pose for some photos. And Jack makes it clear that it's time for this interview to be over. You smiling at the camera? <laughs> oh, that's not a happy oh, face. That's not a happy come face. On. Hey, yeah, be happy. Silver Lake schools tried in-person classes, but just before Labor Day returned to fully online because several non-teaching staff members tested positive for the coronavirus. Universities across Kansas also brought kids back to campus despite hundreds of coronavirus cases. And there's no doubt college sports will look different in the coming months. One of Kansas's best high school basketball players is among hundreds of athletes waiting to find out just how different. Elena Hartman of Spearville, just east of Dodge City, is still hoping to soon take the court for Emporia State University. While the pandemic interrupted preparations for her first season in Division II athletics, she told reporter Stephen Basaha that she didn't lose her motivation. She adapted mentally and physically. Spearville is the city of windmills, with about as many turbines as houses. The heavy gusts are great for the wind industry, but not for the local park's basketball court. Elena Hartman says it makes practicing her shot frustrating. Yes, very. Especially with my dad. He's like, well, go do this, and I try, and I'm like, I can't. It doesn't, it's not working. Oh, so your dad's just like, well, what's the problem? Just go yeah, play at Yeah, he's like, it's just outside, and I'm like, okay, go shoot in the wind, then come back. Not being able to get in a gym, I kind of just stopped. It was too much of a hassle out here. To do. So for a while, you, your only options were either to practice on this court in the wind or to go to Wichita. Yeah, Wichita was just recently actually. I asked my coaches, there's no gyms opening up here. Uh, I said my outside one, one, there's no free throw line, there's no three point line. I said, what do I do? And they were like, well, we'll talk and we'll get back to you. And then they mentioned staying with Daly. Is a teammate from Emporia? Yep. So I drove up to Wichita Monday and stayed with her till Wednesday. And I shoot at her gym and we go to Bethel and Newton and we scrimmage against other girls. We went to the scrimmage Monday. It was horrible. It looked like I've never touched a basketball. Because I haven't actually shot mm, quite a while. I think about a month. So when I like first grabbed it and shot it, it was, it was way off. 
luckily it came back fast. You got me on a good day. Emporia State University's women's basketball team recruited Elena before the end of her junior year, but she still had big dreams for her last year as a Spearville Lancer. She gets it to Haskamp, feeds it up to Hartman, laying it up and in. In fact, her team went undefeated. Spearville Lady Lancers are your 2020 girls spa league champion. The Lancers went to the state tournament in Manhattan last March. Elena made it to the tournament once before her sophomore year, but they lost in the first round. She says this year they played hard. Everyone just wanted to prove it and we're to, so to prove what? That we're good. That to prove that like we were going to go to the state tournament again that we weren't just like a little uh, we got lucky one time and went also me, like being a senior and it being my last year, I like told them, I was like, we are going, we're going far. We're going to win. We're going to push. We're going to do everything we can to just be the best team because they know me. They know I'm competitive. They know I don't like losing. Spearville went up against St. Mary's Colgan in the first round. We were doing really well. We got runs. We got the ball out in transition. Our defense was doing good. I know we had some girls go out with fouls. And that's when I got nervous. They were catching up quick. I think the excitement of it, of like seeing that we were ahead and we were so close to being done, but they were slowly gaining, kind of just gave us that extra boost and that extra like momentum to just keep going. Spearville won 55 to 41. Elena scored 25 points and was eventually named the 2A player of the year. It felt like we just won like the sub-state again. Like everyone was excited, everyone was jumping up and down. It was a kind of relief too. Like we're not going home. Like we're still in this. The next day, we had fun. We went shopping. We went and ate lunch together. Someone got a Snapchat while we were at dinner talking about someone canceling the tournament. We were like laughing, and then it was just quiet for a minute. And then everyone started asking questions all at once. Everyone went into a panic at Olive Garden. On March 12th, one day after the NBA suspended its season, the Kansas State High School Activities Association canceled the rest of the state basketball tournament. Just getting like kicked in the gut. Why was it so important for you for it not to be canceled? Um, one, all the work it took, like all the extra time, like for me personally, all the extra time I spent in the gym after practices, all the extra time others spent, like on their own time and stuff. It was just like all of that led up to this big moment and this big moment's about to be ripped away. I definitely would have rather been home and them saying you're not going at all. Even if it would have meant sacrificing that, not getting that first win? Uh, to me, honestly, yes. Because like, no offense, that first win doesn't really mean anything now. Like we didn't go anywhere else. I think it wouldn't have hurt as much if we wouldn't have played. Coming back, thinking about school, I was like, it's okay. Like I have track. I was ranked number one in JAV for 2A, so I still had that going for me. I was kind of excited, and I was like, it's okay. There's still other things that are going to happen. We had Zoom meetings with our principal of, like, our whole senior class, and I kind of think that's when it hit me is when I saw everyone on the computer screen. And I was like, we're not going back. Like, we're not going to see each other again. We're not going to do classes again. There's no track. There's no prom. Graduation might not even happen. It was just it was so much all at once. It was just like... Mm, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think or feel. Um, Spearville, I think everyone's in that mindset of just living day by day. Like, we cruise around at night and things like that instead of going to the movies. Like, we still find ways to hang out. I understand it's, like, 
the coronavirus is a big deal, but at the same time, what if it doesn't go away? Are you just going to constantly stay in your house or are you going to figure out ways to go outside and like get exercise and see your friends? Elena is getting a full-ride scholarship to play basketball at Emporia State. But like other Kansas universities, Emporia State is telling students not to come back to campus after Thanksgiving, just as the college basketball season is starting. Other people, yeah, they can just go home. They don't have to worry about practices or games coming up. But like us, if we come home, how's everyone going to make practices? Because like we have a girl that lives in Georgia. Uh, I'm like three and a half hours away from Emporia. Maybe like... Uh, the girls that live like in houses or the apartments or whatever can like let us stay with them. So I'm hoping it doesn't change too much. I'm hoping it uh it doesn't ruin it either or like they cancel the rest of the season. If that happens, that would be terrible. <laughs> it's kind of nerve wracking because one, you're already stressing because you're leaving the house. You don't have mom and dad there anymore. Uh, two, it's a whole new environment depending on where you go, you know, it's different than your hometown. Plus, there's a giant pandemic that could ruin your basketball season. Or not ruin, but tamper with your school year and how you, like, learn. Going in my freshman year, I really didn't know what to expect, so I guess that kind of helps. Because, like, for me, it's not going to be different because I've never went yet. So, like, it'll just be, I guess it'll seem like a normal thing, the new normal. Yeah, there's stresses and worries, but there always is. It's just life. So to me, I just kind of, I wait and see what happens next or what other rules we have to follow. Maybe if they were talking about like college online the whole year, yeah, that would be a big thing. But you still get to go for a little while and you still get to like learn and grow and stuff. So, I mean, I'm not too worried. And maybe that's a lesson for us all. The coronavirus pandemic has triggered fear, sorrow, and despair. It's caused real financial pain and raised the volume of our already noisy politics. But it's also given us opportunities to deepen relationships with others in our communities. It's both a cliche and a truth. Nothing has been the same since the coronavirus came into our lives. We here at the Kansas News Service wanted to bring you into other people's experiences to show you how they were dealing with the uncertainty as a means of coping with that uncertainty ourselves. And while the coronavirus will be around for a while, our hour together is over. My Fellow Kansans comes from the Kansas News Service, a collaboration of public radio stations, KMUW in Wichita, Kansas Public Radio in Lawrence, High Plains Public Radio in Garden City, and KCUR in Kansas City. For the Kansas News Service, Brian Grimmett, Corinne Boyer, Celia Yopis-Jepson, Stephen Coranda, Nomeen Ujia-Dean, and Stephen Basaha reported this special and season three of the podcast. Erica Hunzinger wrote and edited the special and was the executive producer of the podcast. Grace Lotz, Brianna O'Higgins, and Beth Golay helped with promotions. Jordan Kirtley designed our logo. Primary Color Music produced our theme song. And the rest of the music you heard came from Free Music Archive. For more stories from the Kansas News Service, go to ksnewsservice.org. I'm host Jim McLean, a senior reporter with the Kansas News Service. Please stay safe for your fellow Kansans.